Well, I've uh, taken some significant flack or some shade in my life for a particular piece of clothing that I have worn over the past eight years, and that is my Skechers. I, I like wearing Skechers for running shoes, and some of you are like, what's wrong with Skechers? And maybe you're wearing them, and no judgment from me. But just so you know, there's a lot of millennials here who are judging you, <laughs> and me, okay? Uh, but the reason why I liked it, because it's you buy one, get one free, it was great when I was running in cross country, and I've just kept that going. But one thing I've learned over my eight years of wearing these Skechers running shoes is that they're basically knockoffs, all right? They look at what's happening with like the major companies like Nike or whatever and make shoes that look just like that. So eight years ago, I don't know if you remember this, minimalism was really hot. You know, people were like, let's go run barefoot um, or like, let's wear shoes with no padding. So that's what they looked like. And now a big deal uh, are, the sh are shoes called Hocus, which are the exact opposite and they're really thick. So this is a side-by-side -side comparison of a Skecher and a Hoka. They're basically exactly the same. And this is the, the most recent model for running shoes. And I say this, or share this, because what James is about is exposing the knockoff versus the real thing. Right? We're in this series on the book of James, and we're entitling it Real Faith, because James is trying to expose what is the knockoff faith versus the actual real thing. And real faith for James is one that is whole, it's, it's complete, it's one in which all parts of our lives are congruent with the reality of our faith. But today, we have a tough start, or at least I should say James begins with a tough place. He goes right for the hardest human experience, which is human suffering, facing trials. And, and the, the, the claim for this sermon is kind of audacious. It's this, it's that real faith receives suffering as an opportunity for joy. Real faith receives opportunity, or receives suffering as an opportunity for joy. Now, if you hear that statement and that makes you mad, initially, I, I understand. And if it doesn't, it probably should. You see, when it comes to experience of pain, it's hard to imagine in what sense we can count that as joy is what at least James says. And so even for my own self, as I come into this sermon, I'm speaking of a maturity that's, that's beyond myself and will be something that I am, am, am seeking out probably the rest of my own life, which is true every sermon, but it feels particularly true today. But I want to tell you a story of a believer who has lived this out. His name is Jacobos. That's at least his foreign name. We'll call him Bo. Bo grew up in a poor family. He didn't have much resources. They had the basic necessities of a life, but he grew up basically in like a small town feel, uh, kind of like the small town where everyone knows each other, but is also kind of judgy. And that was significant because the family he was born into, he was, he was a younger sibling, and his older sibling, his oldest, was born out of wedlock, which meant that his mother was basically scarlet-lettered. She was treated as an outcast in the community. That was the world that Bo grew up in. But, but outside this small community, his entire region, his entire country, was facing a lot of political turmoil. He lived under an oppressive political regime, which meant in his late teen years, he witnessed the murder of his brother at the hands of the state. Now, this obviously was a radical moment for Bo. 
And it led him into the church. That from, from that, he became a Christian. And yet still, as a Christian, he witnessed his friends being incarcerated. Another one of his friends beaten to death in the middle of a street. And Bo, in the midst of that, grew in character and in faith. And he became a significant leader in his Christian community. So much so that he, he wrote a letter. You see, Jacobos, or maybe I should just use his English translated name, James, wrote this letter to a group of Christians in which he opens it up by saying, Consider it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when facing many trials. James, being the younger brother of Jesus, wants Christians to receive trials with joy. And so you can write me off, but I don't think we can write James off. He's someone who has seen immense trials and has proven great character as a Christian leader in the church. And so that's what we're going to explore today. Real faith receives suffering as an opportunity for joy. There is a thing. Normally at this point in the sermon, I would give you kind of like my cute outline. Here's the three things. Maybe we would have some alliteration, but I don't, I don't want to do that today because I want, I want the form of the sermon to match the content. It doesn't quite seem right to have a, a cute, organized outline when we're talking about something that, that, that isn't organized, that isn't cute, that doesn't always make a lot of sense, which is our pain and suffering, right? Suffering and trials is messy. There's a lot of internal dialogue telling ourselves to throw in the towel or don't give up, that when we face trials, we're just trying to get through the next day. Right? It's an odd mix of anger and laughter and sadness. People say insensitive things to us in our pain, and other times profound things. God can sometimes seem to be making sense of our pain, and other times it makes no sense at all. God seems absent. And so when I speak about joy and trials, I just I want to honor that. I'm not going to be able to resolve all that, or maybe not even resolve anything this morning, but at least honor the experience of trials. And so that's what we're just going to explore and so we'll begin at looking at verse 2. Consider it or count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials. Right? If you've ever had a Christian tell you that becoming a Christian is going to make your life easier, they are a fool. And not only that, they're unscriptural. The expectation from James here is that we will experience trials. That hardness isn't going to go away. And, and, and the idea of trials like, is a really big spectrum, right? So I live on the third floor of an apartment. So coming home with a bunch of groceries, that is a trial. Because that either means I'm going up and down three floors, or I've got 60 pounds in my hand on my fingers, and my pinky feels like it's about to rip off. That's a trial. But that's, that's on the end that is insignificant. The other end of the spectrum is trials that are life-ending. Like, for example, experiencing cancer. And I think James has the more severe trials in mind. And we know that just by reading his book. He covers topics such as poverty. Which poverty in the first century had a lot of serious implications for your ability to live or your own status. Sometimes you're so poor you'd, you'd have to sell yourself into slavery. He talks about religious persecution. I referenced earlier in, the in his own personal story that he witnessed his very friend Stephen get murdered in a street by a mob. 
He talks about illness. And we know the pains of our own personal illness, but also seeing the difficulty and sadness of other people going through illness. And then James uses this phrase, trials of various kinds. So he, he opens up the door to all kinds of trials, including the worst ones. And I want to I press more into what those darkest trials look like. So I want to I challenge James a little bit in this sermon. For me in my own life, maybe this will resonate with you, that the darkest trials are the ones that you end up feeling trapped in. Where you look up and you're like, I, I don't know how I get out of this thing. I, I, don't, I don't see the relief on the other side. And when the trapped feeling comes, for me, that's when the anxiety comes. Because you're desperately trying to, to, to make your way out of it, and your body kicks into the fight or flight, and you're trying to run away or find a way out, and you can't. For me, waking up in the middle of the night and just my mind going crazy. And then it goes to hopelessness. There's this quote by Jürgen Moltmann about hopelessness. He says this, to live without hope is to cease to live. Hell is hopelessless. It is no accident that above the entrance to Dante's hell is the inscription, leave behind all hope, you who enter here. And that's a scary place. And to add on top of that, then facing trials where God is absent or at least he feels absent, the conscious experience of God's love is gone. We can't make sense of what he's doing in a time. It's, God, where, where are you? And so James, count that all joy? That's what's interesting about what he says. He says, count it joy when you actually face trials. We, we like to separate joy and happiness and say happiness is circumstantial. But joy isn't. But I, I want to push back on that because I think James, maybe I'm just being a little cheeky here, but he's saying joy is circumstantial. He's saying when you're facing a bad situation, when you are facing a, a particular trial, you are to count that especially as joy, the circumstance itself as joy. And the reason why is because he's going to say why, what, what suffering, what pain actually causes and produces in our own life. But before explaining that, I want to say what what. What James doesn't say, which he doesn't say that joy has to be our only experience in the midst of trials. He says joy should be an experience, but they're not mutually exclusive. There's a great quote that kind of unpacks this from this book called The Other Half of the Church. And it says this, it is important to remember that joy is not strictly an emotion. We might refer to it as a super emotion because it can go on top of and connect with other emotions. For example, if I lose my job, this is usually not considered a joyful occasion. Instead, I experience, I'm probably feeling some combination of sadness, fear, and anger. However, when I experience these unpleasant emotions and can simultaneously feel like God is with me, I've added joy into the mix. If I have close friends who are also happy to be with me in my loss, my joy magnifies even more. Now I'm feeling sad and joyful, fearful and joyful, angry and joyful. Joy does not replace the unpleasant emotions. Instead, it combines with my emotions. I think that's just a really precise and great quote to say that joy is not a mutually exclusive emotion, that in trials we can be complex people, having complex experiences. But still, 
Why the joy? Well, verses 3 and 4 tell us. He says, count it all joy. And he says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect results, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. He says we are to have joy because it's going to, the, the trial is going to result in a particular kind of, kind of outcome. That the outcome is, is about becoming a kind of person, he says. A person who's made up of endurance and ultimately who is perfect, who is whole, who is complete, lacking in nothing. And he, and he replaces the word trial. I don't know if you see that in verse 3. He basically replaces it with, with an equivalent, which is the testing of your faith. Which James is not saying that trials is testing as in, do you have faith? Like you failed, you failed the test, you're not really a Christian. That's not what he's saying. It's testing as in refining. Like if you think of metals being refined into something beautiful or to something strong, something useful, going through a refining fire, that's what James said is happening to you. You are being refined and refined in a particular way, first by gaining endurance. For some reason at our church, we have pastors who like to do dumb things like run really, really far. Okay, so we had Pastor Gabe Coyle run a 50 miler a couple weekends ago. Tim, our own pastor, is going to end his sabbatical with a marathon, which is crazy. But if you know anything about running, running is basically this. You're good at it or the best at it are those who can suffer the most for the longest. That's what running is. And that's what endurance is. It's increasing your ability to suffer. But it's not just for its own sake, he says. He says that endurance builds us up into something. He says perfect, or the word teleos, which has more to do with being integral, with, with being whole, being the kind of person where we express ourselves as a unified whole. And at the very center of us, the integrating thing is God and faith in him, that our faith is the thing that integrates all parts of our life, that something about suffering, about trials, does that for us, and that is what we're supposed to be joyful about. In other words, suffering is a means to an end. The joy is the means to an end. The, the trial produces the, the end goal, which is the completeness, which is our joy, but saying that suffering is a means to an end is not to say that the ends justify the mean. It's not to say the ends justify the means. Let, let me explain this. There's two perspectives you can look at a trial through. One is the person inside of it, and that's the perspective that James takes on. He says, if you're in it, if you are someone who's in it, imagine a person suffering. She's trapped in an experience. She can't control it. The, the perspective that she is to have is, is joy in the sense that she is to suffer well. She is to have endurance and produce this kind of complete faith. But then there's another perspective that's outside of it, looking at it at a whole. And by looking at it from outside, we can say, hey, this trial is unjust. That's unfair. That suffering isn't good. That you didn't need to suffer this way. So let me, let me take an example from an old Bible study leader. Uh, my high school Bible study leader, he was this wonderful man. He was like 75 and it was crazy that he was our high school leader because we were crazy. I don't know how he had energy for us. But he was a man of great character. And one of the things that has caused that in his own life is that when his daughter, one of his daughters was 17 years old, she was killed by a drunk driver. 
right? An immense amount of trauma and suffering that my Bible study leader experienced. His name was Bill. Now, we could look at Bill and say, man, you've overcome this immense tragedy that it's right that this, this trauma, this immense suffering produced in him an endurance and character that proved him to be complete and whole in Christ. Like, it'd be right to say that, but it also would be right, or, or maybe I should say it'd be wrong to say, oh, well, this, this tragedy happened so that you could grow in your faith. Or to make it even more clear, we wouldn't say, oh, that man shouldn't be, the drunk driver shouldn't be punished because it resulted in the growth of this man's faith. No, you'd say it's wrong. It was unjust. That's what I mean. Though, though suffering is a means to an end for us with one particular perspective, it doesn't mean that the ends justify the means. It doesn't excuse it. It doesn't mean that we all should become masochists and enjoy suffering to go out looking for it. And so that's what James presents us here. This is his view on suffering and trials. Take joy because we are becoming whole and complete. Should we end there? Is that, is that satisfying to you? It's not for me. And I don't think it would be for my old Bible study leader as well. I'm sure he would take seeing his daughter being married with children, having a vibrant life over the endurance he gained. So we need to press deeper into this. And the way we need to do that is by making it to verse 5. But before we make it to verse 5, we need to make some, some broad observations just about who God is. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. It's going to feel like a little bit like a detour for a second. But I promise you we're going somewhere. So just ride this out with me. All right, so we need to make three observations about God before getting to verse 5. The first is this. God is mysterious. God is mysterious. You know, one thing as evangelicals that, that we do well and take really importantly is our doctrine about who God is. Like, we, we think we know God, which in one sense we do. Right? He's given us his word. We have our beliefs about God that are important. But sometimes we make the mistake of thinking that we, that means we know all about God, that we're able to put God in this little box that we fully understand him, and we do not. We don't even come close to understanding God. I think about this, the closest thing to being infinite that we can conceptualize is the universe. There's so much we do not know about the universe. How much more than about the person who created the universe? Right, God is mysterious. That's why Paul says in Romans 11, who can know the mind of God? And the reason why this is important is because we must accept the fact that there's much about God that is beyond us, including the reasons why he would allow us to suffer or he would even bring about trials. And this is a mistake a lot of people make that they, that they think because we don't know the answer to that question, why we have trials, it means there's not a good answer. We confuse those two categories. Right? Christopher Columbus, when he sailed the sea to get to India, he didn't know about the Americas, but that didn't mean the Americas weren't there when, he, when his ship ran into it. God is mysterious and bigger than us, and we will never fully know his mind. And we have to come to accept that as a good thing. The second is this. God is personal. God is personal. God's mysterious. God is personal. He's a being with a particular will. 
He has particular interests and desires and plans for our own lives, for the world, a cosmic plan that that took place from the beginning, which means that God is not like some new age spiritualism where we're trying to tap into the good vibes. That's what he's here to give us. No, he, he has plans, nor, nor is he kind of like a, a, a slot machine, like a, like a Gnostic or, or religion that's based on causality, that we just put in the religious practices and outcomes, the good life. God can't be coerced like that. He's, he's personal. He has a will. He has desires. If every time I hung out with my friend, I only hung out with him because I, I wanted him to buy me a beer, He wouldn't want to be my friend anymore. That's not how relationship works. The same is true with God, that that we can't coerce him into something. So he has his own plans and he has his own will that we don't fully understand. But the third is this, that God is love. We can be confident of this. Whatever he allows or does in our lives is not because he doesn't love us. Or to put it in the positive, the plans he has for our lives all exist in the realm of his love for us. And he has proven it most clearly in his son, Jesus Christ, right? Jesus came and he endured worse trials than we could ever imagine and know. He went upon a cross. He experienced God-forsakenness, complete and total loneliness, all because he loved us. Right? There's nothing more that God could have done to show that his highest goal for our lives is to love us. And so what we are to do is to live in the tension of those three things. God is mysterious and big and he has plans and we don't fully know it. But what we do know is that whatever he does is because he loves us. And that, I think, holding those three things together and living in light of those three things is living in wisdom. You think of the three books Uh, primarily about wisdom in the Bible. Job, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs. This is the message that they're trying to get out, that God is big, that he's mysterious, that we don't know and fully understand our things, but our job is to fear the Lord. And so I want to read to you from Job 28 that gets at this very question of wisdom about knowing God. It's a little bit of a longer quote. Job 28 says, But where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? No mortal comprehends its worth. It cannot be found in the land of the living. The deep says it is not in me. The sea says it is not with me. Where where then does wisdom come from? Where does understanding dwell? It is hidden from the eyes of every living thing, concealed even from the birds in the sky. Right. So basically it's saying understanding with the way the world works, all those things, we, we don't have it. It can't be found anywhere. But God understands the way to it. And he alone knows where it dwells, for he views the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he established the force of the wind and measured out the waters, when he made a decree for the rain and a path for the thunderstorm, then he looked at wisdom and appraised it. He confirmed it and tested it. Right? God knows it. He's found it. He's appraised it. He's attested wisdom and understanding. And then it says this. He said to the human race, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to shun evil is understanding. This is the cry of wisdom literature. No one has complete understanding and can access it besides God alone. It is a mystery that belongs only to the Lord. We are simply to fear him. And this is Job's life, right? Job's, the book of Job is all about trials. 
you know anything about Job, you, you know that he lost his home, he lost his family, he lost his livelihood, his cattle, his friends, the presence of God. And in the middle of, of this book of Job 28, we get this statement about the wisdom. And Job has finally an encounter with God. And God says, what, what have I done? I've created all things. What have you done? You, you don't have the understanding. You've done nothing. But Job also gets to experience his goodness. And this is Job's response at the end of the day, in the midst of his pain and trials. This is what he says. He says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Therefore, I've declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful, wonderful for me which I did not know. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. Job's response after the coming of the Lord was to say it was wrong for assuming that I had the understanding and for questioning you. The option left for him is to fear the Lord, which is basically reverent trust. It's the combination of those three things, that God's mind is bigger and unable to be understood, and he has will and a desires, but it's all out of love for us. And it's out of knowing those things that we, we fear the Lord or have this reverent trust. Job's response in pain is the key and appropriate response for us, that wisdom is the faith. In the face of trials, mean, God, you are bigger than me. So let me take us back into James 5. I promise this was for no reason. This wasn't for no reason. Notice what James says in verse 5 that we should do in the midst of trials. If you lack what? Wisdom. You should ask God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. James connects seeking joy in trials with asking for wisdom. And I think the wisdom that James is talking about is not a wisdom of like complete understanding that we will understand our situation or know exactly what to do, but it's this kind of Job 28 wisdom, the, the holding together of the interplay, the tension of the bigness of God, his wills and his desire and his love for us. That's what James is inviting us to do in the midst of trials, to help us find joy is to move into a place of wisdom, of, of trust in God. And the best and clearest example of this is Jesus. He says that the goal of trials is perfection, teleos. And James, throughout the book, throughout his letter, is pulling from the Gospels. He's pulling from the words of Jesus. And Jesus, elsewhere in Matthew 5, says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus uses the same language, same idea. And then he transforms that, Jesus does. Instead of just be like your heavenly Father, he says, be like me. Come follow me. Take up your cross. Follow me. Take on my yoke. Be perfect like me. And what was Jesus' actions, disposition like in the midst of trials? What was his wisdom like? Well, he said... Your will be done, Lord. Your will be done. It wasn't even, Jesus' highest concern wasn't even his conscious experience of God's love. Right? He experienced God forsaken, on, God forsaken him on the cross. Instead, his highest concern, he says, was doing the will of the Lord. John 4, my food, my drink is the will of the Lord. His prayer in Garden of Gethsemane, facing the biggest trial that he's going to face. He says, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. 
I think that is perfect faith. That is real faith. In the face of trials, right, God, your will be done. In the midst of suffering, not my will, but your will be done. God, acknowledging your understanding is beyond mine, your will be done. Acknowledging God's motives for us is love, God, your will be done. Receiving true wisdom, God, your will be done. The cry of Job, I don't have understanding, but I trust you. And what is the result of that? That places God at the very center of our lives. Our whole lives become a constellation encircling our very center, our very core, which is our faith, which is God. And that is where joy is found, that he is at the center of our lives, working and acting and moving. And what trials, what pain, what suffering does more than anything else is it causes us to let go and say, God, your will be done. You be at the center. I trust you. Real faith receives suffering as an opportunity for this kind of joy. Let's pray. Lord God, I have said things that are, that are beyond my own self. And even, even as I finish it, I was like, whoa, that's, that's incomplete. There's, there's so much more to be said. That when we deal with trials, we're dealing with some of the most complex experience and deep and, and deepest wounds that, that we have, Lord. And yet, you tell us to count it all joy, Lord. And I just pray that our joy that we find in it is that you are working at the center of our lives, that we find that we can trust you. That you have proven that whatever you do in our lives, whatever you allow, it is within your scheme of love for us. And so I pray for those who are sitting in this room facing trials, experiencing that feeling of being trapped, that they would be able to confess with their mouths, Lord, your will be done. Father, we love you and we need you. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.